French director Jean-Luc Godard once said, It's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. This is Save vs. Rent. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about our favorite RPG rules. Before we get into this, I do want to have a quick little clarification about something that we said in the last episode. <clears throat> One of the things that we said was that 2nd edition characters gained magic items at the same time that 3rd edition characters did. And what we were actually meaning there was that you didn't wait until 8th level to gain a magic item in 2nd edition. The thing is, in 2nd edition, there was a lot more random distribution of magic items. It wasn't about building treasure hordes. It was about rolling on a table and getting lucky. You would encounter enemies that could potentially have magic items, and whether or not they had magic items was determined by a roll of the dice. You could get a magic item. In Pathfinder and D&D 3rd Edition and subsequent editions, there are more magic items. This is a fact. But a lot of those are really just treasure in disguise. They, they are. I mean, if you have a plus three weapon that you were given last session, picking up three plus one swords isn't really going to change what you have. It's just extra money. Yeah, that's just 2,000 gold pieces worth of treasure times three. That's what's happening there. You're not getting three plus one swords that you're going to distribute to the other party members who also already have their niche magic items. A lot of times, the more treasure you're getting in later levels that's magic items isn't intended to be used as magic items. It's intended to fill out treasure in a way that's transportable. So to get that out of the way, the point is that... Second edition did have magic items if you were playing rules as written, and you would get those magic items well before the eighth level that everyone's always talking about as being, well, that's when you start getting magic items. No, if you're playing the actual rules, you see magic items before then. That's the essential point we're trying to get to. Sorry. Moving on. So today we're talking about our favorite RPG rules. Now, we really have two classifications of these rules. One is rules that are actually really interesting, make us go, ooh, ah, and make us want to steal them and put them into any game that we're playing. These are rules that are just good by themselves. These rules are really cool, very versatile, and add a lot to the games. The second category of rules are rules that are so unique to the games they're in that it's difficult to imagine them being moved anywhere else, and they're what makes that game unique. So we have a lot of different examples here. We're going to kind of go a little bit freeform here, but let's just start going down. Uh, number one, Fate, Session Zero. We've all played Session Zeros before. Session Zero is where you get together and talk about how the characters already know each other or already acquainted with each other, why they're in a group together, and why we don't need to roleplay them meeting one another. Maybe they've been on adventures before, or maybe they're old friends re reuniting at a specific location where the adventure is going to begin. In either case, we're talking about characters who already know each other. We all have done that in some freeform sort of way. With Fate, and specifically the Dresden Files, Session Zero is where everyone introduces their character. They've all had one little adventure beforehand, maybe a few small adventures, and then... You weave the other characters into your backstory. 
in session zero, you hand off your story to one of the other uh, players. You can go, hey, you were in this story too. How did you help me out? And they, on the spot, go, well, I remember that I actually drove a, a, a bulldozer directly in front of that uh, enemy car that was coming right at you. Or, well, since I'm a werebear, I completely uh, took out half of the horde that was coming at you. And it's this wonderful way of developing this interconnectivity between the players. Part of the point of the Session Zero is to give you that ability to weave your characters in in a structured manner. As I recall, you have to say how you were in someone else's story, and they were in your story. Is that it's... You, you were in someone else's story, they were in yours, and then you do this again. Another one of the people, you were in their story, they were in your story. So you have two backstory bits... And you connect yourself to two other players, thus weaving the whole group together. Another great part about the Session Zero is that you are often creating a bit of your town. Even if you're playing in a real-world city, there's a little nook, cranny, place over here, spot over there, that is unique to these characters, unique to this setting, and is a place that you want to visit. In the Dresden Files book, I believe it's uh, Max Pub isn't a real place in Chicago, but it's a wonderful place in the Dresden Files. So, Session Zero is a great way of bringing the group together in a way that feels organic and useful, but also structured so that you're not just freeform throwing around ideas. I personally like removing the bonds from 5th edition. I find that those are kind of a uh, little wobbly, a little whiffly, not quite good, and replacing it with this sort of bond with other characters. It gives you a reason to want to adventure together. For the second rule that we wanted to talk about, in the World of Darkness, Chronicles of Darkness, Old World of Darkness, there's always been a concept of morality in the game that is a way of measuring how morally upright your character is. Now, the interesting thing about how the World of Darkness does this is that there is morality for humans, which just measures your connectedness to other humans and your empathy and all of that. But because the player characters are almost always going to be monsters, one of the first things you do is you replace morality with something else. If you're a vampire, it's humanity, how connected you are to humanity and how well you hold on to the tenuous grasp you have on your failing connection to what is mortal. In werewolf it's about your harmony how well in tuned you are with your spiritual side in mage it's your wisdom how well you are capable of keeping your powers from overcoming you and completely erasing everything that you are as a human being my favorite one of these is clarity from changeling not only is this how good you are, but it's also how much of a grasp you have on reality. The less clarity you have, the more giving into a story your character is. The more you're giving yourself over to the weird, and the less real things are to you. And this can be damaged by the strangest things, like someone stealing your identity and causing a shakeup in your life can be a breaking point for clarity. 
Now, what makes this a cool system is that it allows the game to reinforce to you what it means to be one of these monsters in a way that's relatable. Because we all want to be good people for the most part. Whether we even admit that to ourselves sometimes is another matter, but ultimately we all want to be good people. And when you stop wanting to be a good person, you become, you become something else. The monsters are trying to be the best monsters they can be. And that is a aspect of being that best monster, is being connected to the mortal world or being in tune with your spiritual side or being able to retain your clarity in a world that is so chaotic and strange and weird. And they all do a great job of immersing you in the setting and making you think of what it is to be one of these monsters, which is what a good morality system or a good alignment system in a game should do. The next rule that we want to talk about is the voluntary dramatic failure. Now, this was introduced in the Chronicles of Darkness version of the New World of Darkness and first introduced in Mirrors, which was a set of variant rules. The way the rule works is if you have a normal failure, uh, normally in order to have a dramatic failure, you would have to have a penalty to your dice pool so great or such a small dice pool that you would have a zero or negative dice pool. Then you get to roll a chance die. If the chance die comes up with a 10, you succeed. If it comes up with a one, you fail and suffer a dramatic failure. Anything in between is just an ordinary failure. A dramatic failure is supposed to be a failure with some sort of serious repercussion. Well, dramatic failures almost never happen in the world of darkness because it's so easy to find some way to stack a plus one bonus and give yourself just one die in your die pool, especially if you're making an important roll, you'll, you'll end up spending willpower or something, anything to get one die in your die pool so you don't risk that dramatic failure. But what if we convince the players that they want to have a dramatic failure from time to time? Having the players have a voluntary dramatic failure in the Chronicles of Darkness gives them a beat. It's a part of a point of experience. And the best thing in the world is looking at the players and going, well, you failed. Do you want to make it worse for yourself? And having them worry over this small little detail of going, ooh, do I want to make this bad? Is this something that we could suffer having a bad penalty on? You know what? Let's do it. I dramatically failed that. Well, you were looking for a place to buy, and boy, did you find a steal. Yeah, things like that. You find yourself in a situation where you can offer the players an opportunity to make their role-playing experience more interesting and to up the difficulty in a way that makes them feel rewarded for it. They get a beat for this, so they're getting rewarded for taking on an additional challenge and making the game more interesting for them and their characters, which is the big thing you want to be able to do in a role-playing game is create drama. So a dramatic failure being something that the players might want to take voluntarily is a great system that gives us a reason to have these dramatic failures in our games. The biggest problem that people have with Superman is that he's unbeatable. All of his flaws come randomly. It's the same thing with player characters. If they win all the time, if they're min-maxed all to hell, then what's the point? There is no drama. But if you give them this chance to go, not only is it bad, it's worse, it's amazing. I like doing this in my Dungeons & Dragons game. Whenever anyone rolls a 1, I go, you want to make it super bad for you? And in 5th edition, I award a point of inspiration for them doing this. It, it lets the tide of battle, it lets the tide of any social encounter flow and ebb and change. It's 
a great way of adding, as John said, drama to what could otherwise be a very flat story. The next rule we want to talk about is the Escalation die from the 13th Age game. Now, in 13th Age, there is a die called the Escalation die that's brought out in any given combat. And each round of combat, the Escalation die goes up by one, starting at one, and then two, and then three, all the way up to six, giving the player characters a bonus to hit based on the level of the Escalation die. Now, the reason this is, is because the longer you stick in it, the easier a combat gets and the more it starts to shift in your favor. This does a couple of things. One is it allows monsters to be a little more dangerous, and if you just stick through the fight and manage to endure the first few rounds, you start to get the upper hand, which is a cool dynamic to give to the player characters. It can also sometimes be used for other effects that are based on how high the Escalation die is. The whole point of it, though, is to keep the game moving, but give them a reason for encounters to last more than one round. Another thing that we want to take from the 13th Age is the one unique thing rule, which at first I didn't even realize was a rule that other people weren't playing with. One unique thing means that you find one specific unique thing that is completely unique to your character at character creation and you declare it out loud you you say for instance my character what what's unique about my character well he is the heir to an entire kingdom my character has the ancient sword that killed the world building dragon yeah, it's inert. It's not magical right now, but I have it. These are gigantic story hooks waiting to happen and are something that breathe life into otherwise possibly dull or lackluster characters. It gives us an opportunity to have characters with something about them right off the bat that we can all grab onto and say, that's a really cool thing. Your character has one unique thing about them. And this is something that can easily be ported into nearly any system. You can always find some reason to have one unique thing about a character. And we can work that into our narrative, we can work that into the DM's narrative, and we can make that part of our games, especially in long, ongoing campaigns. So, the next... uh, John, my notes here must be wrong. Uh, It says we're talking about Dragon Age again? Oh, look, look. Hear me out. I do not like the Dragon Age RPG because it doesn't feel like Dragon Age, right? Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. It actually has a really interesting system in it called the Stunt Die System. Now, the way the Stunt Die System works is all of the rolls in Dragon Age are rolled on three six-sided dice, but one of the die is a different color. And the reason is, is this is the Dragon Die. Now, it's used for several things. One, it determines the degree of a success. For instance... If I roll three dice and you roll three dice, we, we both uh, we both have a check and we both succeed on the check. If we want to know who succeeded better, we look at our dragon dice and whoever has the highest dragon dice value was the one who succeeded better. And the second thing it does is if any of the dice come up a pair, then that's basically the Dragon Age RPG's equivalent of a critical hit, and you have a custom critical table that you're allowed to bring... Uh, 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 no, 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 John, John. Last episode, last episode, we talked about how custom critical hit charts are a bad thing. How can you say that, they, that they're bad things in the last episode and a really cool thing in this uh, episode? Look, hear me out, okay? First of all, 
I never said they weren't a cool thing. The problem with custom critical hit charts is they are very random. And when you introduce them to a game, you are introducing more randomness to the game. That was my huge complaint with the Dragon Age RPG, is in Dragon Age, the video game, your powers worked consistently and you always did your thing. In the Dragon Age RPG, you only do your thing when the stunt die goes off. When the stunt die goes off, you have a chart with abilities you get to choose off of it for your effect and you get to spend all the stunt points you had on the stunt die so if you had a four on your stunt die you have four points to spend you know for for uh for uh one point you can have a rapid reload where where you immediately are ready to make your next action um or you can uh knock an enemy prone or you can take a defensive stance all of these things are things you can choose but the biggest one way up at the end of the chart at five is actually where the double damage comes in which is what we all think of as the classic critical hit that's where you start doing a huge extra bl blast of damage so you don't usually do that usually the stunt die just gives you some cool thing you get to do in battle the problem was is that in the Dragon Age RPG, I expect to do my cool things all the time. I don't expect to do them just when my stunt die goes off. What I would love to see is a game that uses this system to better effect. Imagine a game where you're all mutants with unreliable powers that allow you to do things and maybe most of the time your powers work at a certain level where you can always do certain things and, you know, you can climb on walls and stuff. But every once in a while, you have this burst of power that lets you do phenomenal things above and beyond what you could normally do. And it is a use it or lose it moment. This is when you get your burst of power. It happens when it happens. That would be great. Why wasn't Dragon Age that? That actually sounds like Marvel First Class. I would love to play a superhero Marvel game where, oh... Let me teach you how to use your powers. And it has that unreliable system. Yeah, you'd have like a stunt eye system where when your stunt eye goes off, that's when you get to do your cool thing. But you have to wait for that moment and you have to hope for that moment. And it changes the dynamic of the game. That's why it didn't feel like Dragon Age, but I can still admire this aspect of the system. Well, that, that actually kind of brings us into the second type of cool rules that we have. Because I don't really see having a stunt die system being something that you can just add into any other RPG. But that's fine. It's a really cool thing of that system. The next rule that we have that's really cool for its system are the skins from the Apocalypse Engine, specifically Monster Hearts 2. Now, in Monster Hearts, you're playing pubescent teenagers who are going through all of the drama of high school life. Oh my goodness, the boy that I have a crush on doesn't even notice me. Oh, doesn't he realize how awful she is? Oh my goodness, my best friend is talking behind my back. And you get to play out all these wonderful little teenage social dramas. Oh yeah, also, you're a monster. Yeah, with monster powers and um, the associated drama and terrible things that happen to monsters as well. On top of the continual experience of finding your sexuality and understanding the world around you in a time of change and flux. It's a really interesting system. The skins, however, are one of the things that makes the system great. The skins are basically your character. They tell you exactly how you build your character, what happens in your backstory. You, it also has a sort of session zero where you connect yourself to other people in the party. And 
it enforces a very specific style of play. I, I have the book right here. I flipped to one of the random skins, the werewolf. Playing the werewolf, you're aggressive, and uh, your look is primal, unkempt, and your backstory. Give a string to everyone. That's some sort of connection. You lack subtlety. You've spent weeks watching someone from distance. Their scent and mannerisms are unmistakable to you now. Gain two strings on them. So you've been following around this one other player, and it just tells you to do that, and it forces you to play the game that way. Likewise, during character creation, when you're generating your stats, you get either one set of stats or another. No die rolling, no nothing, just pick one of two. Which some people might feel is a little hemmed in, but it actually completely makes you play how the game wants you to play. That's something I've always loved about the Apocalypse Engine games is that they're about working within specific constraints and a specific feel for the setting and expectations for the setting. They have chapters in there on how to customize the game and make it your own, but that's not what you're presented with in the book. What you're given in the book is a specific expression of the Apocalypse Engine and of the different ways of viewing this game. And it's really cool how these skins are built to be the structure that you then breathe narrative life into. Uh, I've always I've always really admired the Apocalypse Engine. It's a really neat engine for playing one, two, three off sessions that aren't meant to last for like enormous campaigns of 20 plus levels, but still give you a really cool feel for uh, role playing and interacting with your group. Another little thing I really want to talk about here for just a moment, but I, I want to kind of preface this. Um, when, when John and I are talking about things and talking about topics, we, we talk about things that are in the green zone, we can talk about in front of everyone, things that are in the orange zone, things that we kind of have to use tact about, and things that are in the red zone. We just don't want to talk about those subjects. This next uh, subject is a little bit in the orange zone. It's about uh, sex and how that makes you feel. The werewolf, when they have sex with someone, you establish a deep spiritual connection with them. And until one of you has sex with someone else, you can defend that person even better. You defend them like a packmate. This, very specifically, the idea of you're a teenager with your budding sexuality and sex meaning so much more than just the, the act of sex, it is amazing and deep. And it works sex scenes into a tabletop RPG without them being awkward and squicky and kind of wrong. Okay, maybe they're a little awkward, but I mean, you know, that's that's part of role-playing, is, is having these unusual experiences and stepping outside of your comfort zone to some degree. And I think Apocalypse World and Apocalypse Engine and Monster Hearts especially are great games for starting to explore other aspects of role-playing in interesting ways. And, and that's that's the thing, is that you can't, I can't imagine trying to stick sex moves into any other game. These are so unique to the way that Monster Hearts and Apocalypse World work, that they are just an aspect of that system that, that you couldn't just transplant into some other game and call it good. They are they are inherent to the the sort of uh, exploration that that game entails of concepts like sexuality and being uncertain of ourselves and growing. So the next the next rule I want to talk about is the juicers from Rifts. 
Now, Rifts is a wonderfully out-of-date, but so wonderfully over-the-top setting. It's ridiculous. And it's ridiculous in all the right freaking ways. Now, the game itself is so out of date that I actually just can't play it. Oh yeah, it's it's unplayably bad by modern standards. It's during the awkward pubescent stage of RPGs where they were still just finding themselves and exploring new ideas. But it's essentially a post-apocalyptic world. It's a post-apocalyptic world where magic ended up wiping out everyone. And so there are these ley lines, these rifts that are open everywhere that let horrible creatures from other dimensions come in. You know, creatures like dragons. And so you get to fight them with laser weapons. And you get to have cybernetic technology. And you get to use psychic magic. And you get to have people that are ley line walkers. And sometimes you can be a dog boy. And it's... uh... It's absolutely crazy. But but one of the things in it is this concept of the juicer. Now... I'm going to be talking about the Savage Worlds Rifts, which is a an updated version of Rifts. So if I say something that's a little off or not quite how you remember it, it's what well, it's what I'm familiar with now. Yeah, and Savage Worlds is honestly a lot more playable than the original Rifts, period. But anyway. So juicers have this augmentation going on where they are always working at their absolute peak. Think Bane from Batman with his... Venom going into his brain, giving him the weird steroid injections, and I can't remember if that was from the movie, the comics, or the TV show, but... I think the answer is yes, but anyway. And so so you're roided up all the time, and it's slowly burning you out. As such, you can do these really amazing overclocking your body things that causes horrible wear and tear. Every time you spend one of these eight points, you get closer and closer to death. And eventually, your character will die. And they are absolutely irreplaceable. When you spend these, they are gone. Which is so interesting to me, having a character that has a built-in timer until they're dead. Most of the time when we're playing RPGs, player characters are trying to keep their character alive as long as possible. Playing a juicer, you are going, yes, I have a clock on my character, and I will die, and it will be epic when I do. And I'm I'm just trying to imagine implementing this in any other RPG, and I can't. It's just such a thing from Rifts. It's so classically Rifts that it's amazing. It's actually a great exploration of how we connect to our characters. Really, how comfortable are you with creating a character that you know not only has an expiration date, but that expiration date is, is very soon? And you're going to burn them out eventually. Which is where we talk about another rule from Rifts. The Blaze of Glory. If at any point in time your character would go down, you can declare, Yeah, that probably is going to kill me. And then you get better. But by the end of the session, your character's dead. No ifs, ands, or buts. But this gives you a way of working with your DM and going out in a Blaze of Glory. You go, No, that didn't kill me. But when I die, I'm going to do something amazing you actually get three they're, they're called bennies which is in the rulebook it says it's american for benefits i've never heard that american slang before but yeah i think i think that's made up but anyway so you have these three bennies yeah you, you have these three i'm just gonna call them fate points that to spend and go out in an over-the-top wonderfully bloody 80s action movie style 
scene. And it gives you a certain level of uh, control over what is ultimately the final part of your character. Much like how having voluntary dramatic failures adds drama to the story, knowing how your character is going to go out is a great way of giving you closure and giving you one final bit of control over the story of this character. The next thing we're going to talk about is Hucksters from Deadlands. Now, Deadlands is a system that I really, really like. It's a setting that's really cool. It's the Wild West with magic. Yeah, kind of a weird West setting with weird science, with magic, with undead, with with craziness, and it's all in a Wild West American pastiche. The Hucksters are the magic users. They're the wizards. But they gain their power from wrestling the Manitou, which are Native American demon spirits, and using their power, uh, using the power of these demons for their own purposes. Now, to do this, they go to the spirit world and play a hand of poker against the Manitou. Now, if they now if they succeed, they get to use this power freely. If they fail, sometimes they just fail, and sometimes the Manitou takes control of them. Now, the reason I like this is because the actual mechanism is the player character draws from a deck of cards and creates a poker hand to see how much power they produce to see if they can actually cast the spell they're attempting to cast. Now, I'm a fan of magic systems that are a little uncertain, that are a little fuzzy. I like magic being more of an art than an exact science. And this hits that note perfectly. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you get it exceedingly well, and sometimes horrible things are going to happen. Yeah, so it gives you that that complete shift from total disaster to absolute glory, and there's a possibility of coming up anywhere on the spectrum. It's not like the Vancean magic system that you see in D&D, where you just cast a spell and it just happens, and the effects are based on how that spell changes the world, but the change is a certainty and an assumption. The Huckster's magic can go wild in all sorts of different ways. It can be incredibly powerful, or it can be an absolute failure. But that's part of what makes that such a unique addition to Deadlands, is that it can go so many different ways. Now, most of these rules that we've been talking about have been from more modern games. We like to think that as RPGs have gone forward, they've become more interactive, more interesting, deeper games. Well, that's not necessarily the truth. People have had really cool custom rules in RPGs since forever. Yeah, some of them have been very setting-specific, and some of them have just been generalized rules. But one uh, old setting-specific rule that we like to bring up right now is the Powers Check from Ravenloft. Now, in Ravenloft, the whole world is kind of dark and dreadful. And it's because there are these greater powers, the dark powers, that are watching over the world and punishing the people there. Now, if you're a good person, you're never going to have to worry about a powers check. But if you're bad, if you're evil, if you do things that are just a little morally gray, then the dark powers are going to take notice and go, yes, slip deeper down into the evil wells. Yes, good. 
point of the powers check was to entice you into doing the evil things with the eventual result that if you continue down this path, you will be destroyed. But as you go down the path, you get more opportunities and more chances to draw just enough attention from these dark powers that they might bestow a boon on you. All right, so that was a whole bunch of little rules. Let's do the wrap-up here. What can we take away from this? All sorts of things. A lot of these rules can be transplanted into other systems, and those ones are kind of obvious. I mean, anyone can add to their system some sort of opportunity for the player characters to accept voluntary failure, for example. That's a pretty obvious one. The escalation die would be a neat way in a lot of games of making longer encounters build up to the player characters able to do great things. So those are pretty obvious, but one thing that's maybe not quite as obvious is how some systems make games unique and how sometimes adding a little bit of uniqueness to your game can go a long way in making it have its own feel and its own character. Like in Deadlands. Yeah, they could have just said, yeah, you're a Wild West wizard, whatever. But having them be card-playing hucksters is cool. It gives a different feel to it, and that's one of the things that we want to have with our game is feel and substance and character all its own. And if you're able to bring that into your game, that can be a phenomenal thing. And that doesn't necessarily always mean having super unique rules. Sometimes just having a system for dramatic failures or just having a sort of morality humanity system is enough to make a, to make a game feel like its own sort of game and really come into its own. So let's see, up next... You know, John, we've been doing this for almost a year. Wow, yeah, we have. So, for our season finale, we're going to have a springtime special. I mean, the flower nights are wafting their scents into the air. You can hear the call of the phoenix in the trees. The sunstalker is high in the sky up ahead. Sunstalker? Wait, are we... We're talking about Kingdom Death, aren't we? We're talking about Kingdom Death Monster. Okay, well then I need to take a quick moment to give a bit of a warning. The next couple of episodes are going to be about Kingdom Death Monster, which is a game of nightmare horror. That means that there are going to be a lot of adult themes, you know, graphic violence, terrifying situations, depictions of sexuality, sort of things that can make you very uncomfortable. If you are not comfortable with this sort of material, we invite you to skip the next two episodes and join us for our season two premiere, which is going to be about virtual tabletops and how the technology that we have available to us now allows us to play games over a distance. But our next episode is going to be about Kingdom Death Monster, and it's going to be a spoiler light episode in which we discuss the concepts behind the game and what we have come to like about it and why it interests us so much. So this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very, very much for listening. Steve Jobs once said, My favorite things in life don't cost any money. It's really clear that the most precious resource we all have is time. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.